Uh, all right, well, why don't you turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We are going to continue our I Am series this morning. And um, we have uh, been looking at the I Am statements of Jesus. So all throughout the book of John, we can read about, there's seven different times that, that Jesus said, I am, and then he declared something. And these statements that we read about um, are in the book of John, Jesus said this, but there's a greater pattern in scripture that we see where God uses the phrase, I am, to declare, to declare his deity which um, made what followed that much more significant for us. Like, take a look at this example, Isaiah 41, 13. God said this, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. I want you to understand that the breakdown of that, that, that phrase. He said, I am the Lord your God. I am the creator of this universe. I am the God, and I will take you by the right hand. And I'll look at you and I'll say, do not fear, for I will help you. Man, when you understand the first part of that phrase, it makes the second part so much more significant. And so that is the pattern you see all through the Bible. That God would declare who he is, and then he would connect that to us personally. And when we understood that the God of the universe was saying this, then we, it meant so much more when he connected to us personally. So when Jesus made an I am statement, it was an incredible the important proclamation of who he is and what it means for us. So that's what we're looking at here through this series. And we are in John chapter 11 this morning. And we've been in this section of scripture for a while, um, the last several several weeks on this. And so I just want to kind of give a recap where we're at here. We, um, in, in chapter 9, Jesus heals a man that was born blind. And the Pharisees don't want to believe that. And so they investigate that. Um, they can't dispute it. And long story short, Jesus ends up in an interaction with some Pharisees over that, and he teaches on a sheepfold and a shepherd, and in that is where he declares, that's in chapter 10, he declares, I am the gate of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. And so in chapter 10, that's where we see that, and that's all part of the same teaching. So the last couple I am statements we went over, that was in there when Jesus said, I am the gate of the sheep. I know everyone has to enter through me, and I am the good shepherd. I will lay down my life for my sheep. I love my sheep. I'm not the hired hand that will run away. I'm the one who will lay down my life to protect them. And so that's right now. Later in chapter 10, we didn't read this. I did allude to this, but he, Jesus is then in Jerusalem, and some people come and they say, when, Jesus, when are you just going to tell us plainly that you're the, the, you're the Messiah? When are you just going to declare that? And Jesus says, I have told you. He said, I have told you. He just taught some of these same people that, and it was very distinct. And he says, I have, but he said, but you do not believe. And so then he kind of goes into declaring this once again, and he, several different things he says, but he, he lands on this phrase. He says, I and the Father are one. Very, very straightforward, declares that. And when he says that, they pick up stones to stone him. And, and then he has an interaction, he says, why are you stoning me? And he kind of calls them out on, on some of that. And then by the end of that, they're very angry and they try to seize him and he escapes like Jesus was pretty good at doing. And it says that him and his disciples then went back across the Jordan to the place where John had originally been baptizing people. So they left that place, you would too, 
okay? They were going to stone him like they were going to kill him for his blasphemy claiming to be God, even though they said, when are you just going to tell us that, okay? But so he leaves. Him and his disciples leave, just barely escape death, and they are... um, they are back across the the Jordan River. Okay, now, that's where we pick it up in chapter 11. Okay, so in chapter 11 here, we're gonna look at this story, and this is a pretty famous story. We're gonna break this down, and then then we're gonna really dive in what it means for us here. And in the midst of this is when we get our I am statement. So here, verse one, chapter 11 says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And so Mary and Martha and Lazarus are all brother and sister. Mary and Martha, they, as they say here, they talk about the story of the perfume and wiping the hair. That's a famous story. Mary, they're, in the, they're in the Gospels a lot. We read about them. In a little bit, you'd read more about them. This is this famous, the famous story where you know, Martha's busy in the kitchen, getting stuff ready for Jesus. Mary's sitting at his feet, and there's that whole interaction of who's choosing the better thing. That's the same Mary and Martha. And Lazarus, we don't hear about him a lot, but Lazarus is the brother of those two. The biggest thing to understand, this is a family that he's very close to. These are dear friends of Jesus, and so that's why they say the one you love is, is, is sick. They're sending words saying that this, this very good friend of yours is sick. Okay, so verse uh, 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so... When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. I think that part is kind of confusing, because he literally says he loved those siblings, so he waited two days, and then he said, let's go back. And I think that can be confusing, but obviously on one hand, we're going to read about in a minute that Jesus said, this won't end in death. And, he's, and he ends up saying something else about he knows what he's going to do there. So there's, some of it is that. But some of it, too, we'll talk about the timeline more in just a second. But in the timeline, there's a very good chance that Lazarus is already dead by the time the message reached him. Okay, and we'll talk about that timeline more in just a second. And so it's not so much that if he had left, he would have made it. It, it, it may have been too late already, but the messenger wouldn't have known that, okay? But the other thing apart to understand this is what just happened in Judea before they left, They tried to stone him, and his disciples were there and scared, and they left with him, and that's what we get in verse 8 here. They say, but Rabbi, they said, his disciples, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. It's like, don't you remember? It was just not that long ago. He says, and we're going back there? Okay, and so I think there might have been something, too, to the fact that the disciples had to be ready to be able to go back there um, as well, and so, but... All this to say this, it was a big deal for Jesus to go back there, okay? It wasn't so much, so when we read this, like, he loved him so much, he just hung around for two days, chilling, and then he went, you know, went back. It wasn't so much that. It was a big deal. It was like, we just, almost just got stoned back there. The disciples were scared. They could have gotten stoned as well as followers of him, and so they, he then, he waits a couple days, and he says, okay, but we got to go, and that's what I'm saying. He loved them so much, he's willing to go back there, okay? So, Then Jesus answered them, he said, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight will stumble, for they see by this world's light. If it is, it is when a person walks at night that they stumble, 
for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And this this phrase for saying he fell asleep, you see that all throughout the Bible. That's a way of like a nice way of saying he's dead. We do the same thing. We say stuff like he's no longer with us. That could mean he left the room, right? You know, whatever. But it's like we say that he died or whatever. The same idea. He says they're asleep. Now, I also think there's part when they're saying, hey, if he, and they say, well, if he, if he falls asleep, that's good. He's sick, you know, and so they misunderstand him, which we'd have. I also think there was a little bit of avoiding going back there. I mean, remember, this, they were just about to go to this death was that way. That's where they wanted to go. And so they're like, yeah, if he's, if he's sick, he should just sleep, you know. And so Jesus has to just tell them plainly in verse 14. He says, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He says, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And that's the part of saying he knew what he was going to do. He said, I was glad I wasn't there. Um, I, I'm glad um, I was not there. He, he, he knew he was dead. Again, he hadn't heard word of that, but he knew that, and he said I wasn't there. One thing, one little side note, though, I wanted to say, this is a great um, little part here for Thomas, okay? Uh, for those of us in the church world, what do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Poor Thomas. I'm telling you what, and it's all because of one story after Jesus was, was crucified and they come and tell him that he's risen. He has not seen Jesus and they tell him that. He refuses to believe it. He says, unless I can stick my fingers in the holes in his hand, I won't believe it. And so we talk, call him Doubting Thomas because of that. Okay, And I think even that story gets a bad rap and I've talked about that one before. We don't go into that. But this is Thomas, so-called Doubting Thomas. Okay, And here's the thing. He says, let us go there to him. And then Thomas looks... Thomas is the one, looks at the disciples and says, let us also go that we may die with him. I don't think he's necessarily talking about Lazarus being sick and that we're going to get sick and die. He's saying, Jesus is walking back to his death. He says, guys, let's go. Let's go with him. Good old Thomas. Quit calling him Doubting Thomas. Okay, all right, verse 17, we'll move on. Okay, on this arrival, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Wait a minute. Jesus gets word, he waits two days, and then he goes and he's been in there four days. This is why I say there's a very good chance that Lazarus was dead when, when Jesus got word. Because from where they were, it's in Bethany in Judea, to where Jesus was, they say it would take about a day to travel there. Okay, so they, when they sent a message, they didn't just text him, guys. This is old school, okay? Somebody had to walk to find him, and by the time they found him, it probably took about a day and then he says he waited two days, and then Jesus had to travel that with the disciples, and so that would, at minimum, that whole thing took four days, okay? It could have maybe taken, taken longer, but that's why I said there's a good chance, though, that, that hours after that messenger left, Lazarus died. And so by the time the message got to Jesus, he was already dead. And I'm not saying he, he just was like, oh, well, he's already dead. I mean, it could have been sometime else in there, but that's why we see... There's not necessarily a discrepancy there. It's the idea, we've got to remember travel time and all those things. He's been dead for four days, and that's also very important, and we'll see that later in the story. He's already been in the tomb for four days. And in this time, it would have been normal to put them in the tomb or bury them or whatever the, the day they died, 
They didn't do what we did and like wait several days. There was no like keeping him fresh long enough to have a funeral. Like it was like, we got to get him in the grave because he's, he's dead and he's going to stink. So that's what, that's why I would say, that's why I, how I see the timeline there. So verse 18, now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. This is, that fam- this is a famous kind of moment in the story where Martha comes out and says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And I, I think for most of the, uh, my life, I have seen this, this interaction wrong. I've always seen it as kind of like in their grief, they're upset in their grief, probably didn't mean, they were kind of accusatory, like Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have died. But then she says, but even now I know that God will give you whatever, whatever you ask. And, and again, think of the timeline. There's a very good chance they sent the messenger and hours later, Lazarus died. They knew the message couldn't get to Jesus and he could come back. So even though it took him several days, I mean, they probably wouldn't even thought anything of that. I do think though there was in their grief, there was that wishful thinking. I think she came out and just said, Jesus, I wish you had been here. Because if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And I think there's a lot of faith in that because they knew. These are people who believed in Jesus. These are people who, I mean, we talk about the one who poured the feet, anointed Jesus, and and in a moment we'll see her face. She believed, but they believed he could heal. They saw it, and she knew, like, if you had been here, you'd have healed him. I know it. And so there's a lot of faith in there, but there was this, like, I just wish you had been here so you could have healed him. So I don't know as much that she is accusing him of being late, because sometimes we see the whole he waited for two days, and then, and then you think he's, she's accusing him of that. Again, we think very, everything's got to be right now, and this time they wouldn't have necessarily thought that, and so I think she's just saying, man, God, Jesus, I wish you'd been here, because I know you could heal him, and there's a lot of faith in that. So let's look, but she didn't see the whole picture there. She didn't see the whole picture. So verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus tells her what he's going to do. He says, oh, no, your brother's going to rise again. And so she, and so she says, yeah, yeah, on the resurrection at the last day, he will. She thinks Jesus is comforting her, just like we would do. When, at a funeral, we say, man, we'll, if, of a believer, we're like, man, we'll see him again in heaven someday. And it doesn't, it doesn't change the circumstance now, but it does make it give us that hope and that feeling. And in this time, there were some that believed in a resurrection of all at the last day, some that didn't. But um, she's saying, oh yeah, you're right, he will. And, and Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not, that's not what I'm talking about here. And so and that brings us to verse 25, which is our I am statement for today. And this is what he said. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The, only, the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? So let's keep reading. She says, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. What a great statement of faith there. But uh, uh, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went out, uh, went to him. Now Jesus had yet, not yet entered the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews 
had been with, who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, I think it's that same heart, grieving heart, but she's just saying, Lord, if you had been here, I know you could, would have healed him. I know you could do that, and I wish you had been here. So verse 33, though, look at this. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Again, referencing that man born blind that we read about in chapter nine. And this is a very famous part of the story. And there's a lot of reasons that people say, well, why, why was he so deeply moved? Why was he troubled? The shortest verse in the Bible everyone can memorize, Jesus wept. Everyone's like, I know one verse, Jesus wept, right? You know, but why did he weep? And even there they were saying, look, he loves him so much. And others were saying, but if he loved him so much, why wouldn't he have just healed him? And, and so there's even debate there. But there's a lot of people that say different things. It's like, was it that he had compassion on them? He saw them weeping. It just, he saw their heart hurt and his heart hurt. And he did that because nobody had more compassion than Jesus. Um, was it? I've heard people say that, that it was because of their lack of faith. They're mourning here, and he's like, you don't believe in me really who I am. I proclaim this, and they'd say he was, he, he was weeping because of that. I, or was it something else? Well, we'll get back to that here in just a little bit, but let's keep reading. Jesus, we're almost done with this story. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across its entrance. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Okay, all right. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by, the time, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. This is actually really important to understand with, with Jesus' proclamation, because remember, he had been in the tomb for four days. This wasn't like he died and he's in the other room. It was just a few minutes ago. He had been in the tomb for four days. And in this day and age, in that climate, that body was decomposing super fast. It was nasty. And that's why they were like, don't open that door. It's going to stink. Like, really, it's just like, God, he's been in there for four days. You know, like, Jesus, he's been in there for four days. He had already begun to decompose. He wasn't like he looked like himself, but he just had no breath in his lungs. He was dead and decomposing, okay? That, and that's very important to understand. But um, let's keep reading. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of those people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus, um, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and clo uh, cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Whew. Now that is a passage of scripture right there. That is a story. And let's, 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 we're gonna dive into this here and I just, wanna, I just wanna connect some dots and I'm gonna let the story speak for itself. But let's pray that God would speak to us through this scripture. Let's pray. Lord, God, I thank you for this story, this incredible story. And I thank you for all its parts. And Lord, I just pray, would you speak to us, help change us through this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, 
Amen. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Back in verse 25, he said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lived by believing in me will never die. See, here Jesus makes his statement, and then he quickly and succinctly explains it. And at first glance, you almost think it seems like a redundant explanation. God does that. He will say it multiple times in multiple ways because we need it, right? (laughs) Because we need to be able to catch it and so do that. But in this, he's not doing that. Jesus makes two proclamations about himself here. He says, I am the resurrection, and he says, I am the life. I am the resurrection and I am the life. And his explanation for it is also in two parts, in respective parts. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. So Jesus was saying, all will die on this earth, but through belief in Jesus, we will be brought to life. We will be resurrected. Okay, and then Jesus also says, I am the life. Whoever lives by believing in me, that resurrection we just talked about, will never die. He's saying the life that I'm talking about, the life that Jesus gives through belief in him will be eternal. It will not lead to death. So Jesus is very distinctly saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not die. Although he said, though they die here, he's saying, I will give them life. And he says, I am the life. And when I talk about life, I'm talking about life eternal. I'm not talking about life here. When Jesus is painting a picture that I'm talking about something so much greater than life and death on this earth. That's what Jesus is painting this picture of. And Jesus said, I am these things. They are not just something he did or that he can do, but they are who he is. What he did in this story was proof of that. When Jesus, what Jesus did is proof of who he is. All through, all through his ministry, when Jesus did something, whatever he did, that was proof of who he is. When he was healing people, that was proof that he is the healer. Okay, it was saying that that's who he was. It wasn't just something he could do. Same in the story. When he showed us that he could resurrect Lazarus, it wasn't just so he could say, look, I can bring dead people back to life on this earth if I want to. He was saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says as much in this story. He even says he was glad that he wasn't there to heal Lazarus. When he says that up in, up in verse 15, he says, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. He's saying, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal Lazarus before he died so that you may believe because there's a greater point he was trying to make. And even Martha thought he was talking about the resurrection on the last day. And he says, no, no, I am that resurrection. He says, I can show you because I could do that right now with your brother in the tomb. I can also do it later with all believers She says, I am that resurrection. Whether it's today, whether it's that last resurrection, he says, that's me. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I can show it, I can do it today because I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus needs us to understand that so that we truly believe. And that's his whole point. He needs us to understand that about him so we truly believe who he is. And that's why I say, even though there's incredible faith statements by Martha um, in, in this, but he's like, they still weren't quite getting it yet. And he's like, I need you to understand this because I'm trying to do so much, something so much greater than heal sick people or call Lazarus out of his earthly grave. I'm doing something so much greater. So why is that important? First thing is this. 
Why do we need to understand that? The ultimate enemy of man is death. The ultimate enemy of man is death. Look, it started way back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, 1 through 7 said, says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not, not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then their eyes, both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Shame came on them. Sin came in the world. That's the famous story, Adam and Eve. But I want you to understand something. The serpent says, you will not certainly die. Yes, you will. And here's the thing. They weren't physically poisoned and died of dysentery. Like, I want you to understand. Like, they didn't eat the fruit and then, you know, had to go and then they couldn't stop. You know, whatever. Like, I mean, just saying, like, sorry, that was too much for 4th of July, I think. But enjoy your grilled food. No, okay. So, that when, when he spoke, he was telling the truth. But he was talking about something different. He was talking about earthly death. He said, if you eat that fruit, you're not going to die. And he said, even you'll gain wisdom and you'll know good and evil. And it even says that their eyes were opened. But their eyes were opened to the wrong thing. And they didn't die physically. And that's what the serpent was talking about. Well, when God said, you must not eat of that fruit, you must not even touch it or you will die. He's talking about a different death. And that's the thing, when, when we look at even Jesus in this story, he is talking about a different thing. In Adam and Eve, they were separated from God, who is what? He is life. And so they now are left with death, and that's why Jesus came, to defeat death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In other words, the final enemy is death. That's the one that needs to be defeated. Jesus knew that, that this, death, is the ultimate enemy of man. He knew that. And I think that could be why also he was so deeply moved and troubled by their weeping and why he even wept himself. See, the Greek word for deeply moved can also mean intensely agitated, which is kind of strange. He's intensely agitated. This is like a, like it says he's troubled. He's almost frustrated. Like that's kind of the feel like, and so that's why I think some of the people have said, like, what well, was he frustrated with their lack of faith or whatever? But I think, I think there's more to it than that. Yes, I think Jesus had compassion on them in their mourning, okay? And because again, so many times Jesus was about to leave a place and people came and it said he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. So God, God does connect with our heart. When we hurt, he sees that and he feels, feels that. But remember in the story, he knew what he was about to do with Lazarus. Think about that for a second. People are weeping and crying, and he's like, in just a few minutes, he's, he knows he's going to call Lazarus out of the grave. So he knows their, their, their sorrow is going to turn to joy in just a few minutes. So why then would he be so deeply moved? 
Because he, again, you read earlier in the story, he already knew what he's going to do. He already told Martha, he's like, your brother will rise again. And he was talking about today. So why would he be so deeply moved? Well, here's the thing. I think Jesus was moved beyond the situation of this family to the situation of his family. I think when he saw those people weeping about the death of that, that man that they loved, he saw beyond that and he saw the situation of his family, the grip that death had on them in this moment. He saw the grip that death had on his, his, his family, the children of God, the people that God had created. He saw that and he wept and, he saw, and, and, it, was, and it was this deep agitation like I'm so tired of death having this grip on them. That's what I think he was moved by. It's why he came. He said, God so loved the world. It moved him then to come and give his life as a ransom for many. It's why he came. It's because we are dead in our sin. That's the other thing we have to understand. We are dead in our sin. That's the death that Jesus cares about and came to resurrect. That's why I think he saw past this situation in front of him and he saw about the death that he, he came to resurrect. Colossians 2.13 says, you were dead because of your sin and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all sins. It's the ultimate problem that Jesus came to solve is death. The death because of sin. That's the ultimate thing he came to solve. It started back in Eden and it continues to this day. Sin, the things, which sin would be the things that are not of God. Just like when they took from the, the tree and he said not to do that. They chose something not of God. And so therefore, when we choose those things, it's not just bad stuff. Because even, even the serpent knew it wasn't bad stuff. But it was not of God, it was not of God's design or will or his nature to do that and so it's not just bad stuff, it's death. And just like in the garden, it led to death. It rips the life away from us. That's what sin does. It's not just, oh, we did bad things instead of good things. It takes, it's, it was choosing death over life and it's just, the life is just ripped away from us. And here's why that is so important for us all to understand. There is no amount of makeup that can make a dead person live. There is no amount of makeup that can make a dead person live. Think about when you're at a viewing or a funeral with an open casket and you go to you know, do the last viewing of the body or whatever, and they put all that makeup on them so they don't look you know, dead, but, but you can still tell, right? I mean, have, have you been fooled by that? I don't even think my kids get fooled by that, honestly. Like we've gone to viewings and they're just like, what's going on over there? You know, like they, can just, they just know that makeup could be as perfect as could be, and you could still tell that that body is dead, that there's no life in those lungs. Because there is no amount of makeup on a dead person that's gonna make them just come to life or even look alive. And the thing is, in the same way, there is no amount of outward goodness or kindness or generosity or acts or no amount of positive social media posts no amount of self-care, that's my new favorite one. Sorry if you say that, I'm sorry if I offended you, but 
Like, there is no amount of all these good things and these good things we can show other people or do for other people that will, can fool God into thinking you're not dead in your sin. Think about it. He is life. Jesus is the source of life. And so there's no amount of things we can do to, to show God we're, we're okay, we're not dead in our sin, see? He is life, he knows the difference. And there's a great example, is in Matthew 23, 27, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. You can paint a tomb to look beautiful, but it still has a rotting carcass inside. And that was Jesus' point. And the thing is, that's something we need to hear today. Like there's, there's a death and life issue. It's not a good and bad issue. It's not a thing of, oh, I just do these good things. It might change that because you can paint a tomb, but there's still a rotting body inside. There's death in there. And the, he came not to, for the outside, but the inside. He came not for this, this life and the death and life that we think about. He came for the death and life that is ultimate, that is eternal. And that's what he came to deal with. But the real beauty of all this is that, is that right there, that that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. Because the last thing we really, and this is the main point of these, this I am statement, is that Jesus did not come to make bad people good, but instead to make dead people live. He did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. The thing about this I am statement is that it cut to the core of the human condition while highlighting the central purpose of the gospel. Jesus came to make dead things live. That was his purpose. You know, in Ezekiel 37, there's a famous story about a valley of dry bones. Let's, let's read this, Ezekiel 37, one through six. It says, the hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. They had been dead a long time. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, only you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And just like in the story we read today about Lazarus, God says, you will know that he is the Lord by the way he brings those to life that were dead. That's how he says, that's how we'll know he is God. But wait, it gets better. Okay, let's keep reading in Ezekiel 37. Look what happens when Ezekiel actually prophesied. So he said, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breathe from the four winds, breath into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. 
I want you to get this. So in Genesis 2, God took dirt and he erected a man and then it says he breathed life, the breath of life, into his nostrils and he became a living being. Then in Ezekiel 37, when he first prophesied, the bones came together and tendons and flesh came on them and skin covered that, but there was no breath in their lungs. So then he said, prophesy to the breath, that the, that the, the breath of life would come into those that are slain and that they would be living. Okay, and then in John chapter 11, Jesus takes a man who was decayed in the tomb. He wasn't fresh. He was decaying in the tomb, and he restores him. He resurrects that body, and then he gives him life that he can walk out of the tomb on his own. So in the story of Adam, God erects a man and then gives him life. In the story of Ezekiel, God resurrects the dead, and then he gives them life. In the story of Lazarus, Jesus resurrects his body and gives him life. And in our story, God takes what is dead because of sin, and he resurrects it. He restores it, and then he gives us life, eternal life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's why it's so important for us to understand. It's for us. All of those stories are about us and are about all of God's people, all his creation. That's why he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And all these things just prophesied about Jesus. He said, he's the resurrection. He's the life. It's really our story and what Jesus means to us. But look at how this story in Ezekiel ends. Then he said to me, as God said to Ezekiel, after he had prophesied and all this happened, he said, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy to them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle in your own land. Then you will know that the Lord have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. He's talking about us. Yeah, he was talking about the people of Israel, but he was talking so much greater than that. And he was prophesying about Jesus and what he would do. And like, just like Lazarus, God is calling you out of your grave. There is hope in Jesus because he is the resurrection and the life. I love this quote from Augustine when he said this, Jesus had to call out Lazarus by name for if he hadn't, all the dead would have come out of their graves. Jesus has the power to resurrect you, to restore you from death and decay and to breathe life into you, a life that does not end in death. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. Now, as Jesus asked about this, when he first made this proclamation to Mary, he then asked her a question. He said, do you believe this? He said, do you believe this? And we know that Jesus is Lord because he brings dead back to life. And God wants to bring your dead self, dead to sin, and he wants to resurrect it. He wants to restore it. And he wants to give you life. Amen? Let's pray. Worship team, you can come. Lord, we thank you. 
Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you make dry bones into armies. Lord, we thank you that you're moved by the morning of death, but because you yourself came to make the dead live. And although all may die on this earth, you said if they believe in you, they will have life. And that the life that you give through belief in you will not end in death. So Lord, I thank you for that. And I pray for every one of us that we come to grips with the fact that death is that ultimate enemy. It's that last enemy to be defeated. It's the thing that has gripped us since the garden. And that we are dead in our sin, but God, you didn't come to just make bad people good. You came to make dead people live. You came to restore life when we chose death. So Lord, I, I pray you continue to do that today.